Welcome everyone. My name is Don Hansen and I am the chair of the PPG Advocacy Division and this is our monthly advocacy panel. And I have with me here several of our experts and I'm going to let them each introduce themselves. I'll briefly tell you a little bit about me if you don't know me already. I chair the advocacy division and I serve on the board of the Pet Professional Guild and I am a pet care professional up in Bangor, Maine. And we're going to start off here with Christy. Thank you, Don. Uh, my name is Christy Benson and I, am, I work for the Academy for Dog Trainers and I also have a dog training online school um, and I'm coming from Northern British Columbia, Canada. Dr. Laura. Hi, everyone. I'm Laura Donaldson. I, um, I'm a professor emeritus from Cornell University, and I still live in the beautiful Finger Lakes region of upstate New York. Um, I do full-time behavior consulting and I also created the Slow Thinking is Life-Saving for Dogs program and course. Excellent. Beth. Hi, everybody. I'm a cat behavior consultant in uh, Brooklyn, New York. I've been doing that for about 20 years. And I am on the executive committee of the PPG Feline Committee. And Monique. Hey, everybody. I'm Monique Williams. I'm coming to you from outside of Atlanta, Georgia. And I am a dog trainer and behavior consultant, but I am coming to you today as a member of the PPG ECLID committee. And Aaron. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Aaron Jones. Um, I'm a certified dog trainer located just outside of Houston, Texas. And I am a part of the inclusivity division and also the shelter and rescue division. Well, thank you everyone for being here today and giving us your time. The membership really appreciates it, as does all of PPG. Today's topic is what is management and can it be enough in helping pet owners? And I, I find this to be a really interesting topic myself, but I thought we should probably start. I'd like each of you to define what management means to you and how you see it as differing from dog training, because I th think this is something many of our students and clients don't maybe have a disconnect there and they don't understand the difference. And I'm gonna just throw it out to whoever would like to start first. I can start. Um, the Academy just did, uh, like I guess it was in March. So March is management month sort of social media blitz where we had lots of bloggers and um, sort of, uh, you know, graphics and stuff, all just talking about management because it is so important. It's so important for dog training. And it's also something that I think is really hard for people to get. I know when I first went to dog training school, I found it kind of a confusing topic. And I think that we as animal behavior professionals forget how much effort it took to learn what management is. It's like one of those jargon words that we throw around, but it actually is relatively complicated. So I guess, you know, from our perspective, management is I mean, I guess you could say response prevention. It's preventing an animal from doing something or experiencing something that we don't want them to um, for whatever reason, whether it's because it's affecting their welfare. You know, we want to prevent them from having a fearful response to something that scares them, um, or if it's a behavior that 
you know, we don't want to see in a pet dog like jumping up on grandma or something, you know, we want to prevent that from happening for, for any reason. Um, and I guess, you know, there's really the two big things that are important about management. Number one, it can prevent the dog from being, you know, emotionally affected or from doing something we don't want to see happen while training is underway. And in some cases, it can just be the entire solution, not in all cases. And I think that's sort of an important thing to, to sort of remember and discuss. But certainly while training takes effect, we can use management, you know, like putting the dog on a leash so that they aren't going to be, you know, jumping up on grandma at the door or using, you know, so while we train them to do a nice, you know, different behavior. Um, or in some cases, it can be the entire solution. And that's just fine. I could think at the end of one of the blogs that we posted, uh, Jean, my boss, said something like, you know, we we live with scavengers. Put your shoes in the closet and shut the door. You know, so it's just like these are simple things that we can do that just make everybody's lives better and easier. So, well, I, I like how you targeted the simple because sometimes, at least I know some of my students and clients come to me looking for an elaborate training solution, which yes, we, we could find a way to, to train something different, but sometimes simple is the easiest and the best, uh, especially when you're dealing with a puppy and they're gonna outgrow a lot of the things anyway. Um, let's get a, another species perspective. I'm gonna let Beth or Monique go and talk either about feline or equid management and where it falls into things? So from an equity standpoint, um, I try to look at it as much in, in terms of antecedent arrangement. So I'm thinking in terms of um, how I can set my horse up to, to do something that I like. So from uh, some of the complaints that you hear from horse owners are, um, he resource guards his food bowl, or he bullies the other horses away from their food bowl, or um, different things like that. And, you know, management is actually one of the best ways to handle some of those common complaints like that. So we, we take horses and we put them in kind of an unnatural environment. So many horses are kept in a stall for 12 hours out of the day or even longer instead of being out on grass. So preventing them from having that constant access to forage is gonna help set up the horse for some resource guarding. And then we add to that, we kind of double down on that by introducing something that's really high value, like a grain, say a great senior feed that's covered in molasses and all the good stuff, right? So not only have we deprived the horse because of our management, but then we've added something to it, something high value like a grain, and we're setting the horse up for resource guarding or for bullying herd mates. So if I change that management, I'm setting them, them up for success. So first thing is, give them more access to forage and movement. Um, and then the second thing is, is if I'm gonna introduce something like grain out into a herd, I need to do it in a smart way. So for me personally, that is everybody goes in their stall. Now, I know that I just said, I don't want them in stalls very long. That is literally the only time of the day that my animals will go in their stall. It's for meal time. And the rest of the time they're out for free forage. And what you find when you do that, when you're setting themselves up, setting them up like that, 
is that you don't have all that resource guarding. You don't have the horses coming into the barn ready to compete with each other. You know, and with horses, that's dangerous. If I put myself in the middle of the barn with my 1300 pound Morgan thoroughbred and my 1100 pound quarter horse, and then another 1100 pound, you know, thoroughbred, that can be dangerous for me if they decide to start jockeying around with each other and trying to prevent access. Um, so I'm smart about it. I, I set them up with all of the proper foraging and, and roaming that they need, constant access to uh, feed. And then when I do introduce something that is high value, like a grain, before I bring them in, I put, you know, I, I don't bring the food out. I put them in their stalls, I close the stalls, and then I go get the food. And magically all that disappears at that point. So I think that setting them up for success and, and managing those antecedents and managing and being smart about the way um, that I conduct my management is the biggest key. Thank you. Beth, from a feline perspective, where does management play a role? Well, I, I have always said that I think cat behavior consultants have a lot to learn from dog trainers about training, but I think dog trainers have a lot to learn from cat behavior consultants about managing the environment. Um, when I started 20 years ago, training was, very few people were even doing cat training. Um, I, I started doing training right away because I grew up with dogs, and so training seemed very natural to me. But when I started, most cat behavior problems were dealt with exclusively through management. And it still plays a very big part. And there's uh, two reasons for that. One is that you can't train an animal not to do a natural behavior. For instance, you can't train a cat not to scratch. You can train a cat to scratch here and not there. But a lot of scratch here and not there has to do with management. It's about 80% management and about 20% training. Um, so you can't train an animal of any species not to do a natural behavior. And the other thing is, and again, this applies to every species, you never want to allow animals to practice behaviors that you don't want to see. And so managing the antecedents helps you to avoid allowing them to practice behaviors that you don't want to see. So management is really important. And I think the number one probably reason or number two reason that most cat behavior consultants get called in, it's always number one or number two in terms of frequency, is litter box problems, and litter box problems are solved almost exclusively with management solutions. Excellent. Erin, anything to add from the canine perspective or any other perspective you want to toss in here? Same with you, Dr. Laura. Well, Christy pretty much, you know, hit it right on the right on the head there, uh, what she was talking about with everything. But one of the things also I want to mention is putting management in place early um, from the, from the start is absolutely key and important. Um, that's going to help you a lot with those problem behaviors, um, the fearfulness, unwanted behaviors. So putting that in place and then slowly, if you can, releasing those boundaries and things like that when they've proven to you that they can give you acceptable behaviors. So for me, putting management in place at the very beginning is, is very important. Laura, what would you add? Well, I um, management is critical. It, I, I actually, it's the almost the first thing I talk about with clients because 99.9% .9 of the clients I work with have dogs who are struggling with aggression. 
And with aggressive behavior, management is absolutely critical. And it's also training. That's what I emphasize. This is not just locking our dogs in a closet, right? No, uh, because we know that behaviors are supported by neural pathways in the brain. And I use the analogy of the well-honed cross-country ski track, right? We do cross-country skiing up where I live. And it's much easier just to keep going down the same track, right? A lot harder to actually create a new track. And that's the same uh, principle uh, that the neural pathway supporting your dog's barking, lunging, growling, biting behaviors, um, you know, use. Um, the brain is use dependent. And so that is why management is absolutely critical and not to mention uh, a safety. Uh, it's a safety issue. Um, with some aggression issues like resource guarding, management is actually the best approach. You know, if it's, if it's fairly clearly defined, it's just the dog guarding a food bowl, for example, yeah, you could spend, you know, six months and a lot of money trying to change the long-term behavior, but maybe the easiest solution is just let your dog eat the food behind a closed door, and then use safe practices to call the dog out, go get the bowl. That may be enough. Uh, so I management is critical. Um, it's actually active training. It is absolutely essential safety uh, for most of the dogs I work with. And I think people get that. They, they really get that. Um, and so I, it's almost the first thing I talk about whenever I meet with a new client. So some good things there. And I want to circle, we will circle back to aggression, but I want to get back to something Aaron said about, you know, introduce it right from the get-go. So I want to just see where you guys are at on this. The, the place where I always try to introduce this from a get-go is with someone with a puppy. Because if you, if you manage the jumping, if you manage the house training, you're, you're gonna get to where you wanna be, but it's best to get them to start thinking about it, ideally if you can, even if they, before they bring the puppy home. And the other place where I find I have these conversations many, many times is introducing a dog into a home with children. So I had a call the other day and, um, you know, it's been going on for four years and now the dog has bitten someone and now they've called to talk to me about it. Um, you know, getting people with dogs that are planning on having children to be thinking about it ahead of time. Do you guys agree that those are two real important places for management to play a role? And if so, how do you convince people to do it? Because lots of people don't think about it. I go ahead and start with my canine clients. Um, go right ahead. The way that I start 
um, I'm looking for it right now is I go ahead and provide it. So to a certain extent, when, when I get a new puppy client and I'm, I'm talking dogs at this point, um, because I don't get many young, young horses. Um, but when I get a new puppy client, I know what some of the danger zones are, right? Some of the things that I know are going to take them on their own a lifetime to get put in place. So I provide them as part of what I do. So for example, I have signs that are made up and I give my clients the first lesson, I give them two of these signs and the signs say, um, uh, you put them at your front door and your back door, wherever you wanna put them. And they say, hey, puppy and human in training, one of us seems to be getting it faster than the other, sorry. You know, please give us a minute. So I, I like provide that. signs up at, you know, that they get from me. So I'm not sending them out to make something. Um, the other thing I do is I provide two of the little treat jars that I want them to stash in different locations in the house so that they have reinforcement in different places. So I provide two of those treat jars. And then I also provide um, three, three enrichment toys so that I get them using those for when they want to sit down and watch TV uninterrupted or when they want to um, cook dinner and have the puppy in the kitchen with them. So that everybody gets a licky mat. Everybody gets a, a treat ball that will, you know, dispense cookies. Um, and what is the third thing everybody gets? Um, it's like a slow feeder bowl. And so I provide those things so that when they leave my classroom, they're already set up to have some of that management in place. And by giving them those things, they already are starting to think how they can do that moving forward. So to me, I almost manage the manager, you know what I'm saying? I try to manage it so that they have no choice but to start some management when they get home. Well, it makes it e a lot easier because they don't have to go out and look for this stuff. And it, it kind of takes away the excuse. It does, definitely. Yeah. How about the rest of you? Beth? I, I, one of the things that we've been emphasizing a lot recently um, in the cat world is just a lot of management is actually appropriate husbandry. You might say it's appropriate husbandry for the species. And we talk, we've been talking a lot lately with you know, prospective cat owners about if you get a cat, your cat will need a scratching post and the scratching post needs to be at least 36 inches tall because most of the ones that are sold are 24. Your cat's gonna need a cat tree or a high perch your cat's going to need an open litter box. The scratching post needs to be in this kind of area. The litter box needs to be in this kind of area. Your cat needs interactive toys that he plays with you and small toys that he can play with on his own. So when we talk about you know, these things, if you get a cat and set your house up with appropriate husbandry in the first place, you won't have scratching problems. You won't have litter box problems. Those things will just never develop. So I think sometimes, we're really just talking about appropriate husbandry for that species. Christy, anything to add? And I wanna throw something in here for, for the dog people. You know, if, if you're of a certain age, you heard a lot about puppy proofing. And when I hear somebody come puppy proofing your home and I hear that now from my students and I, I just kind of giggle and say, well, if you have a home that's made out of poured concrete or stainless steel and no furnishings, you have a puppy-proof home. But other than that, there's always a puppy out there that's going to be smarter than you are. 
how do we convince, what's the best way to get people to understand how they can do this easily without having to worry about puppy proving the whole house? Unless you think that's possible. And I'm open to suggestions on that. I guess specifically with puppies, I would aim more um, about puppy proofing as well as possible, an area where the puppy, you know, is going to be, um, and then doing more supervision and sort of distraction, rather than expecting the puppy will not find something to chew because we all know they will. <laughs> but instead, <laughs> making sure that there's like 87 things around that they can chew on, you know, that are legal and safe and appropriate for puppies. Laura, Aaron, go ahead, Aaron. Um, also, one of the things for me with management is just it's important to introduce areas, uh, you know, not at once. Um, slowly, you know, introduce them to maybe the kitchen area, then a small section of the, of the living room. Um, and when, you know, they show you, like I was saying earlier, when they show you that they could, you know, give you appropriate behaviors and not get into trouble, that's when you can extend larger areas out to them. Um, is one of the important things with that that I let my clients know. Um, also, one of the important things that I always like to tell them that I, I you know, stress to my clients is out of sight, out of mind. Um, if they can't see it, they can't get to it, then we're good to go. So out of sight, out of mind. Laura, you were going to say something too. Well, I, I just wanted to, um, one of the, uh, Ingrid Norris, who's, uh, attending the webinar raised a question in the chat. Do you find that many people you work with just want to use management? <laughs> they just use management. And, um, you know, my, uh, my answer would be, well, yeah, I mean, people kind of naturally want to do the thing that's um, easiest. Although honestly, I'm not sure management is always the easiest, but uh, depending on the behavior issue you're working with, for me, it would be aggressive behavior. Um, what I always say is you, you can, you need to start with management, but it is never enough because management always fails. Management always fails. Uh, we're human. We're going to forget to close the door. That's one reason uh, I have always two forms of management for safety. When I'm working with dogs struggling with reactivity and aggression, uh, because that way you have a fail safe mechanism. Or even if you have a dog that dashes out the door, you open the front door and they make a beeline for the road, create a, a kind of a holding area on your front porch. That's what I mean by management failing. Um, and also I would say with some behavior issues, uh, you, you, you absolutely have to work on behavior change. Management is not enough either. So I think that that actually, do people want to use management? That's a pretty complicated question. Um, and I, you know, since it was asked in the chat, I wanted to bring it up. So I'm going to share a story here about management failing. So there was a time in our life, we had a total of four dogs. 
and we had one of them who developed some dog aggression issues. And we knew this was going to take a while to resolve. And we live in an old farmhouse with basically lots of doors between every room. So it's really easy to sequester dogs in certain areas. And then we had two ways to get outside um, into the same yard. But with my wife in one half of the house and me in the other, there was more than one time when we let dogs out at the same time who we didn't want to be together. An example of management failing. Now we were lucky and we didn't have any dog to dog altercations, but I can tell you the relationship between the two of us, meaning my wife and I was not really good for a few days. You know, and so it's, it's, it's not only can be hard on the animals we're managing, it can be hard on relationships. And those are things we, we have to look at. You know, we got through that. We got our dogs to a good point. Everybody was happy again. But I think it's, it's an important lesson for us to share with our students and clients that, yes, management is important. It may not be the end all. And you have to understand it may fail due to no malevolent intentions, but just because of the nature of life. So I'm glad you, you, you brought that up because I think that's a really, really important thing. I, I want to steer us in a little bit of a different direction. So Christy, some of those um, memes you, you published, um, Zazie Todd actually shared one. Uh, earlier this week, and I happened to to see it. And the the title of the article you wrote was "Throw Open the Jailhouse Doors: When and Why to Choose Training Over Management." And that gets back to something that I think it was Beth that you said. This is we tend to use management to prevent dogs or cats or animals from doing things we don't want. And I think this is maybe partially of what you were driving at, but what if the management we're using is preventing an animal from doing some of the things they need to do to have an enriched life? And I'd love for one of you to, to talk about that, all of you to talk about that if you have some thoughts on it, but I think that's really important as well. I agree with that 100%. And, and it Training and management both, neither one of them should ever be used to prevent an animal from expressing, joyfully expressing the natural behaviors that are part of their species. Um, and I believe me, I've had cat people call me up and say, is there a way I can teach my cat not to scratch anything? And I always say, no, there is no way to do that. Cats need to scratch, but please let's keep talking because there is a way you can teach a cat to scratch things that you've bought for him and not scratch things that you've bought for yourself. There, there is a way to do that. You know, and for me, the answer and the thing that I tell my clients, you know, can I, can I prevent the cat from playing? He's annoying me, you know, that kind of thing. Can I prevent the cat from being active at night? You know, the answer is no. But the thing I always tell my clients is there's always a compromise. If you understand what the natural behavior is, what the need is, what the drive is, and you're willing to let the animal express that, you can always find a way to let the animal express that in a way that doesn't mess you up or your stuff up. There's always a compromise. There's always a compromise. And we just need to talk through it 
so that you understand what the behavior is and I understand what your needs are, and then we can figure out what the compromise is. Christy, do you want to elaborate a little bit on, on the article I cited that you wrote? Because I thought it was very well done, very useful, but let's, let's talk a little bit about that because I know that can be, you know, somebody alluded to the fact you don't just want to shut the dog in a room. I have heard of clients that do that. And, you know, that's, we know that's not good. So let's talk about that a little bit more. And so the listeners today can learn how to help clients from doing stuff like that because it is easy i think that that the big sort of push behind that article is um is that our clients often find dog fights um or even just dog aggression towards other dogs you know um, like a minor snark off to be really upsetting and that is something that we can accept as dog trainers and say you know what that is really you know it's really uncomfortable it's really scary to people when their dogs do this even though it might be well within dog normal, you know, not um, not worrisome dog behavior. So if you have a dog who's behaving like a normal dog and isn't harming anyone, um, for the human at the other end of the leash, they may find this so scary that they sequester their dog. Uh, so we, you know, we, we just wanted to sort of open up a conversation because this is important, right? Uh, if you have a dog social dog who enjoys interacting with other dogs, maybe enjoys going to play dates or or whatever, um, but it has one incident or a couple of incidents uh, of behavior that scares the human enough that they say no more dogs for you. So we're talking about a species that is social, you know, a social carnivore species who gains a lot of welfare boosts from interacting with members of their own species. And we make this call like, no, you did something that we don't like, so we're going to prevent you from ever doing this really big welfare boosting thing ever again. So, you know, as part of sort of our, our, our training boost that month, I don't remember when that was, it was a while ago. We wanted to say, hey, you know what? You can actually do quite a bit of training um, for dogs who have been sequestered. And a lot of times, you know, and, and this isn't gonna surprise anybody on the panel, our clients will come to us and their dog hasn't even behaved aggressively. They might be barrier frustrated on a leash. You know, so they, they a, a human will see a dog be barrier frustrated on a leash and assume this dog is gonna kill another dog and it can never play again. You know, and in fact, they were just social. They were so, you know, frustrated and so pro-social that they were barking at the end of the leash, right? So here we have this opportunity, and I think it's it's a beautiful opportunity for us as dog professionals to say, you know what, we can help you, we can help these people, you know, who are legitimately scared and reasonably scared, because this feels scary. You know, we can help these people and we can help these dogs. And so um, here, this is a case where a management-only solution, which happens unfortunately frequently, the dog is sequestered and prevented from ever accessing a member of their own species ever again, you know, we can, this is a time when a management solution isn't acceptable for the rest of the dog's life. You know, you have a, a pro-social dog who's safe and yet is being sequestered because of, you know, this sort of species, interspecies misunderstanding. So that's, that's where that article came in. Okay, thanks. Laura, from an aggression perspective, let's get to that now, because this is where we have some real safety concerns, both with, for, for other animals, um with people with children um how do you talk to the client who has a dog with a bite history and is adding children into their life don't do it <laughs> either the dog or the children i i People have very unrealistic expectations about dogs and children. 
Um, and there, there are people better qualified than me to talk about that. But on the other hand, um, I, I think this, this is where I would say, and organizations like Pet Professional Bill, uh, Guild can be uh, just invaluable in educating people. Uh, you, you need to be planning years ahead. Don't come to me, you know, when you're, for example, pregnant, the child is due in three months and you're saying, my dog has a bite history, what can I do? And actually the, the most reasonable solution is to rehome the dog. Um, you just cannot make the house safe enough for a baby. If you have a dog who's concerned about children, has a bite history with humans, um, I never guarantee safety, but I will especially not guarantee it in these circumstances and people are just setting themselves up for heartbreaking decisions. And I think a little more um, education thought process very much earlier on in the dog's life and the life of the family could save people a lot of stress and heartbreak over that very issue. Aaron, you were you're nodding your head while Laura was talking. You have some thoughts there as well. No, just Laura hit it. You know, she was right, dead on. You know, it's it's the safety. Safety is absolute number one. We don't have a magic wand, and sometimes you know it's hard. I know for me, there's been a couple of times you know where I've had to you know just be straight out honest. But you have to. Um, you're doing your you know you're doing a disservice not only to the client and like Laura said, setting him up for disaster, but you're doing a disservice to that dog. Because when that dog does turn around and bite somebody, you know, bite a kid or something like that, the dog is gonna be the one that suffers the consequences because it could have been prevented. Absolutely. Other thoughts on this? Cause I, I think it's a really huge issue. And I, when, when you said, Laura, that people have unrealistic expectations, I mean, I think that's huge. And sometimes it's not the people, but it can be their vet, the shelter or rescue where they get the dog and they say, oh, just talk to Don. He'll fix it in a conversation. And yeah, and you know that's happened more than once. And it's, it's not a position I enjoy being put in because I do believe it's essential to be absolutely honest with these people. And so I ask a lot of very uh, telling questions. And if I feel there's any possibility at all, there could be a serious injury, I'm going to recommend they rehome that dog. But I'd be curious to hear if other people have that experience and, and how they deal with it as well. Because I'm always looking for, it's, it's, never a, it's never a fun conversation for anybody. I think it's an important one to have, but. I've had that conversation with people with cats. I mean, human directed aggression is not all that uncommon with cats either. And I have clients who, well, now we're having a baby. And, you know, I've had, what happens often is that I have a client who had an aggression problem and we worked through it. And we typically with cat aggression, we're combining training and management for the rest of the cat's life, you know training sequences that we practice for the rest of the cat's life and management 
you know, practices that we have in place for the rest of the cat's life. And what typically happens is I might have some, a client like that call me two years later and say, well, now we're having a baby, you know, now what, you know, and you know what, we always speak to the cat before we touch him, you know, that kind of thing. We can't guarantee that the baby's going to do that. And those are hard conversations to have because, you know, especially when, when I'm dealing with a client who's actually done everything I've asked them to do and they've combined management and training and made it work, but they recognize themselves that, that the, the, the management and training that they do as adults is not possible for children. And, you know, Don, then I agree with you, you have to have those hard conversations and say, you know, it's no life for Fluffy to spend, you know, 15 hours a day in, in dad's office, you know, behind a door. And, you know, it's also no life for anyone for you to be afraid that at any moment your, your child is going to get bit. Uh, babies in the crib are actually not the target of cats, but crawling and walking and moving toddlers can be with cats who have aggression issues. And I always say, you know, it's, it is heartbreaking to think about, you know, do I, do I keep my cat or do I have my baby? But, you know, here's the thing, your baby's coming and it's no life for Fluffy to be sequestered 15 hours a day. You know, this is something where you think, you know, you guys are having a, actually a really good life with Fluffy now and Fluffy could therefore have a really good life somewhere else with adults. Good points. Who are the vulnerable populations we need to be thinking about safety-wise? I mean, on my list are always uh, very young children, whether we've got a, an aggressive dog or an aggressive cat, um, seniors who might be living in the home, who might not be able to move as quickly or as easily, or someone alluded to a, to a grandma and one of my, I, I had this really sweet little tiny grandma, all of four feet and about 80 pounds. And, you know, I know many dogs that would, would have been able to knock her over easily. So she's kind of one of the examples I, I use when I'm teaching. But I also think about other animals in, in the home. And um, so if you've got a dog that's going after cats and, you know, the people have had the cats forever, the cats were living in harmony, they brought home a dog and now the dog is going over the cats. I always have the conversation with them. Well, what, what kind of a life is that for your cat to live? You know, right. and they I, were there that, first. That gets back to something, uh, Beth, you raised uh, talking about people who call you and say, I want to teach my cat not to scratch. Can't do that. You cannot manage prey drive out of a dog, right? And so when I work with dog cat, uh, dogs going after family cats, a lot of it depends on how intense the prey drive is. Can this prey drive be managed? Can you put into place safety mechanisms, baby gates, gated communities, um, you know, uh, high places for the cat until uh, we can get things to a place where it's safe and sustainable? And depending on the intensity of the prey drive in the dog, that may or may not be possible. And, and so I think that that gets back to being realistic and acknowledging animals, horses, 
cats, dogs, ferrets, bunnies. My parrot, who still bites me, even though he says he loves me every day, uh, um, they, they have natural behaviors that you, you really, it's kind of hubristic on the part of us humans to think we can train every single behavior out of our animal. Or to put it another way, it's 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 kind of uh, ridiculous to think when we can bring peace between the species in our home when we can't even bring peace amongst all the people on the planet. Well, that's you know, a whole nother can of worms, Don. <laughs> but, you know, it kind of gets the point. We've got a question here from Facebook asking specifically about dogs and horses. So, Monique, I'm going to defer that one to you if you would take that on. Um. Yeah, actually, I would love to know a little bit more about their question. Um, are they concerned about horses uh, being dangerous to the dogs or vice versa? So uh, Kelly, if you're, you're listening, can you um, put something up in the Facebook chat that I can see or that Pam can relate to me? All it says was dog and horses. So if we could have a little bit more, more information. I know I have had some clients that have been concerned about the dogs chasing the horses, yeah. you know, yeah. so that might be one perspective you might talk about while we wait to see if we get some more information there. So uh, in my area, we actually have a huge problem with that, um, with dogs being predatory towards dogs or, um, yeah, okay, trying to manage dogs from chasing horses. Um, there are some really great management and training practices that we can put into place um, the biggest thing is um, to really think about um, what a horse can do to a dog or vice versa. Um, so I had a dear friend whose miniature horse was out in the field and got attacked by uh, two pit bulls. And they, these were verified pit bulls. So this wasn't like a, you know, one of those things. Yeah, they must have been pit bulls. Um, and ended up a month in an emergency vet with over $10,000 worth of, of medical bills because of the amount of damage that a dog can do. And they can even do that kind of damage to larger animals as well, not just the minis. And then you have, you know, what happens when the dog does chase the horse or they go for the horse's tail. I hear that one a lot. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of dog training that goes into that. It's more along the lines of the dog training than, than the horse side of it. Um, first we, we tighten up obedience cues around the horses, the sits, the downs and the stays. Um, what we will sometimes do is use exercise pens, um, around the barn so that we can have the dog around those types of distractions and still be able to manage their behavior. Um, we practice rock solid emergency recalls with dogs that have those kind of tendencies as well. Um, so there are a lot of different ways that we can do it. Um, I think most of that though, comes from, from training the dog and, and the management of the dog. So right now, for example, I've got this new German shepherd puppy that's 11 weeks old. And, um, it is important that I start getting him to the barn right now, but I need to do it safely. I need to do it so that he's not getting under feet and, you know, getting himself injured by a horse. Um, and I also want to introduce him in a way that he understands that, um, you know, we need to keep certain behaviors uh, solid, you know, like sitting and giving me eye attention, giving me eye contact. 
Um, so right now what I do is um, I, it's a two person job right now. I need to have someone managing the horse and I need to have someone managing the puppy and it's not going to work any other way um, in order to keep both, both animals safe. Um, and then I will graduate to the point where maybe I have the puppy in the X pen or um, I have a half, half barn door, kind of a Dutch door into my tack room. I'll utilize that for management for a while. And that'll give me plenty of opportunity to toss a cookie over the door and reinforce calm behavior. Say the puppy starts laying down behind the door, I can do that. But really, really reinforcing those, those calm, uh, low arousal stages is, is the most important thing to dog and horse safety. So that got me thinking about something else too. And this I think applies to both cats and dogs is wildlife. Um, you know, what's the best way to deal with that? I mean, management can be part of it. Um, I agree with something Laura said earlier about, you know, we're, we're not gonna manage and even, even training predatory instinct out of some animals is going to be very, very difficult. And plus, that is their natural behavior for both dogs and cats. What are some suggestions we might have there? And where I see this one a lot, I didn't see it the first 10 years in my career. And then suddenly we started having chickens being raised in urban environments. I have nothing against that, but when you've got chickens next door and no fence and you've got a dog, what do you advise people to do in those situations? I would advise people to fence their chickens very quickly. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's what I suggest too, but from the chicken owner's perspective, you know, sometimes these people have dogs, but sometimes they don't. And it's like, well, no, it's not my problem. Yeah. Well, I, I work, I work with chickens a lot. And honestly, that, that has now become um a much more common reason for euthanasia for the yeah. dog i i worked with a client to last year who uh, adopted a a puppy with who had biting issues with the teenagers next door but also had a very in, intense spray drive one day the teenage daughter let the dog out and they had a flock of probably about a dozen chickens. This one-year-old dog went out and killed every single chicken in the, in the household. I mean, it, were, it was their chickens, but imagine if that had been a neighbor and within three days, they took the dog to the vet and had it put down. Um, I, I just think part of, part of this and I, I think again, this is where PPG. Maybe, maybe you need to have a, a chicken section <laughs> or something. A chicken division. Uh, yeah, be, because people get chickens, and then they have what a hunting dog, right? Actually, hunting dogs may do better with chickens than other breeds, but um, they, they're just not thinking, right? Putting. The management and training, the um, the ethological requirements of a dog—they're not putting those together, 
and the need for all animals to lead a safe life. Um, so I, anyway. From, from my perspective, coming from the barn, I do not have chickens, um, but I'm in a relatively rural area. So from my perspective, um, if I had somebody with chickens and you know, they said that their dog was being predatory with the chickens. Um, firstly, you cannot control where a chicken goes. You just cannot. When you think you've got it, they, they just do their own thing, right? So they will pick the most dangerous dog that somebody has and they'll be like, I'm gonna fly into the pen with that dog. So even just containing and using good management with the dog is not enough. So from my perspective, I would probably put a chicken or two in an X-Pen and I would practice approaches with the chickens. And, you know, chickens are going to do what they're going to do in the X-Pen. So I'm going to reinforce eye contact and then I'm going to go back and give greater distance and I'm going to start again. I'm going to, so I'm going to set up you know, approaches. And I'm going to, again, practice my sits and my downs. I'm going to practice definitely my emergency recall command in that in instance. So in the, in the very least, I can at least have that dog um, where it's under my voice control. Now, all bets are off if nobody's there, granted, but I can, I can work with that to a certain extent. And is it fair to say that no matter how well trained the dog is, there's not a hundred percent guarantee that in a given situation that that voice command is going to get that dog to stop and come back and leave the chicken alone. Yes. No. Yeah. I mean, there's voice not. control like management always fails yeah. at some point. Yeah. yeah. Or, or, or to put another yeah. way, it may not always fail, but it has the probability or the yeah. possibility yeah. of failing. And but that's one of the things here, I think people don't always understand. Yeah. The thing is around here with as, as large a rural area as this is, everybody has chickens and dogs and sheep and goats. And, and uh, you know, and then you add to it the coyotes and the foxes and all that kind of good stuff. Euthanasia around here is going to be about the very last thing that happens because we, we can't just go through dog after dog after dog at euthanizing them because they, they show predation towards chickens. So we do have to have something and that something is better than nothing. It's not gonna be hundred percent, but it's, it's better than nothing. So I think that's where management comes in. That's where you have a good chicken coop, a good chicken that's exactly coop. Right. <laughs> you know, it's not then it's not just about managing the dog, it's about managing the chickens. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. I mean, because in, if you're in a rural area, it's not just the dog, it's the foxes and the coyotes and all those other things as well. So you need a safe place for those chickens, even if you didn't have a dog. And a lot of those owners are still going to be dead set determined that those chickens need to be free range. You know, they, they need to be doing their thing. Um, and well, they can be free range in a large fenced area. I mean, free range doesn't mean access to 80 acres. Well, around here it does, I think. Okay. I, I, you know, I think that the more that you move into rural areas, the more um, that some of that stuff just becomes, uh, I don't want to say more throwaway but it kind of does, you know? you know? And if you have a situation where you're like, you know, I'm not putting my chickens, you know, I'm not fencing in my chickens 
And I get it that occasionally wild animals are going to eat my chickens and that's the circle of life. Okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> Uh, I, I don't think, I mean, so I would say, the, I don't want to get us off management. If you're okay with your chicken, losing your chickens to predation, you should never get them. Yeah. You should, I've had chickens, right? And I can say that from the perspective of someone who for eight years never left home because every single night I was, and my chickens were free range but I kept track of them all day. I had herding dogs that would go gather them. I had a really strong coop to echo Beth's point. Um, but if you're really okay with losing your chickens to foxes, coyotes, and I have coyotes in my backyard, I'd say you should never get chickens. I, to me, that is just unacceptable. So I'm gonna, this is probably our last question. This came in on Facebook from Nick. And the question is, when you recommend rehoming the dog due to aggression, how do you ensure the management will continue in the new home? And when is management too much to ask that next home to take on? And I think that's a very, very uh, important question. And also the process of rehoming. Do you do it yourself? Do you work with a shelter? And how are shelters going to respond to be to rehoming a dog with aggression issues? Who'd like to talk about that? Well, I mean, if management is too much to take on in the new home, then that's not the right home for that animal. You know, and when you're rehoming an animal that has aggression issues that are under control with a combination of training and management, then training and management must continue. And if the new home is a place where training and management cannot continue, then it's not an appropriate home. It really is that clear cut. Absolutely. I agree, Beth. Um, the unfortunate thing about things with shelters is 99% of shelters are not going to take on a dog with aggression issues. Um, they don't want to have that liability. Um, unfortunately, there are a handful of shelters that will do that, but not very many. So if a person is going to rehome a dog with aggression issues, like that said, they need to have that understanding and accept, you know, the obligations that this person wants where their dog is going to be going to. Um, you know, if they want the best for their dog, and like that said, they want this dog, then they need to, you know, continue to set this dog up for success. Other thoughts? Well, I think there's a line and it's, you know, it's not hard and fast, but uh, before, and this gets us into the whole question of, is it safe to rehome this dog? If you as a dog training professional do an assessment, work through the issues and really decide um, in, in your mind, it's not safe to rehome the dog, no matter what kind of household or what kind of management, then I think the only option is euthanasia. And of course, that's been a huge debate currently in dog training because um, of the tendency of many people, many rescues to 
pass the buck, right? So it would be the next person who has to deal with the, you know, the severity of the dog, the dog's behavior. So I, I really work through this with clients, but I, I honestly not sure, um, you know, you've first got to establish that line, especially when you're dealing with aggressive behavior. Can this dog be rehomed? That is the first question I ask. And it also goes to the standpoint of the welfare of the dog. Do you yes. think this dog actually really enjoys being aggressive? So like Laura said, it's unfortunate, but sometimes that heart decision has to be made, not only for the safety of people, but for the welfare of the dog also. Good points. Anyone have anything they would like to add as they wrap things up? Maybe a couple of top management tips for that you would give somebody with whatever animal you like. Let's try to end on a positive note here. So, Erin, go. Um, one of the things I always like to say is management also, you know, isn't really just for the dog. Management starts with the owner, with the human. Do your homework. Um, before you go out and get a dog, figure out what what breed of dog is going to fit best in your home. If you work eight hours a day, you live in a one bedroom apartment, you're not going to get a border collie. It's, it's just not going to work. Uh, uh, there's classes out there that you can sign your kid up to enroll for proper behavior with dogs. Education is absolutely number one. Do your homework. Uh, that That is that is key. So management is not just for the dog, it's for, for the, us humans too. Excellent points. Who's next? I'll go. I have okay. something that I, I think, I, I think I'm thinking about it quite a bit because we have some really old dogs and some really young dogs right now. So I think something that can happen in a pet dog home with a large age gap is if the animals are comfortable and playful and then one dog sort of ages out of that, we can forget to manage, you know, and train the younger dog to to ensure that the older dog is having sort of a comfortable retirement. So it's, it's not that hard to, like we have this big um, footstool that when an elderly dog gets in a, in a big chair, we just move it in front so that they have this little like spatial buffer. So the other dogs, if they're playing or whatnot around, the old dogs aren't gonna be like constantly being jostled by the puppy, right? Or we put up a baby gate and keep, you know, if the old dog's just like, I need, I need some, I need, I need a timeout. We just, you know, we prevent, you know, things from happening so that the old dog is, is kind of being jostled or if they don't feel like playing, they don't have to play, yeah. you know, we do training too, but it's, it's easy to manage that, that situation to make sure that our old dogs have kind of comfort and retirement. Excellent. Who else? I, I would say one of the best management techniques and Aaron, this goes back to managing the people, what you said is to respect your animal to respect your animal and to respect their limitations and to respect their natural behaviors. And I will say, I cannot tell you also how many times people have told me, oh, you know, every time I tickle my cat's tummy, he bites me. Well, you know what? Then don't tickle his cat's your cat's tummy and then he won't bite you. It's like the old joke, doctor, it hurts when I go like this. Then don't go like this. <laughs> <laughs> It's it, it's painful that sometimes it's so obvious and yet, but yeah. Monique, anything to add? I think Beth just nailed it on the head, actually, you know, looking at 
at species appropriate management. Um, with horses, a lot of what we do is very contrary to what is appropriate for them as a species. And, you know, uh, we get stuck in some of the old ways. Horse, horse training, as I've said a hundred times, is, is pretty far behind yet. But we get stuck in the old ways and we think, well, if we're going to have this tip top show jumper, we've got to have it in the barn except for, for workouts and that kind of thing. Um, you know, there are a lot of other ways to manage a horse other than having to put up 24 seven. Um, you know, uh, for example, I have an insulin resistant horse who ideally should be off of, of forage all the time, but there are management things that I can do like paddock paradise and stuff. So if you, if you're stuck in a rut and you can't figure out how to manage your horse in a way that is really species appropriate for them. Make sure that you look up one of us, you know, me, Michelle Martia, and some of the other really great um, uh, equine um, behavior folks out there, because we can help you with that. Laura, anything to add? No, I love all the suggestions. I especially want to echo um, Aaron's point. I mean, we need to we need to start with managing ourselves, right? Uh, so if you have a puppy and the puppy is nipping and biting, and then I, as a dog professional, come in and I find out you've been roughhousing with the puppy on the floor, you know, the first management step would be to stop roughhousing. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I want to do that. That's like my joy in life. I get that a lot, uh, you know, I, and I, ha I don't want to be sexist here, but especially for male clients, nope. I, I, need I, I, I throw men under the bus all the time in my classes for that, because so yeah, manage that's a classic. Yourself. Yeah, yeah. Man manage your own expectations, do your homework. And a lot of times that makes management of the dog disappear. <laughs> and I'm going to kind of close this out here, I'm going to echo what some of you have said. And what I want to say is this, is think ahead before you bring that new dog or cat home. Think about who is already in your home, whether they're animals or humans, and how they might be impacted. Understand the natural behaviors of all of those things and determine if it's a wise decision even to bring another new animal home at that point. And sometimes putting things off is the best decision you can make. Panel, thank you for your uh, participation today. As always, it's been excellent. Those of you listening, thank you for all of your questions. Our next topic is dog bite safety. Should it be taught in schools? Is there a public safety concern? That's what we will be talking about in September, just as we go into the school year. And again, I think that's a very, very important topic. So folks, I hope you're here to talk about it. And until next time, have a good month, everyone. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye, Bye everyone. Bye-bye.